Um, some of you will know of um, the Babylon Bee. Uh, it's a satirical Christian website that sort of pokes fun at, um, I guess, events around the world. It's more American. But um, the Babylon Bee was actually founded by a guy called Adam Ford. Adam Ford has sort of dipped his hand into a few different things. But um, prior to starting all that, he was a Christian cartoonist. Thanks, Dave. And um, he's, he's worth looking up because some of his cartoons, are, some of them are really clever, some of them are just, just silly, but some of them are actually quite, um, I guess, exegetical. They're quite, not, not really cartoons, it's almost an exegesis of a passage. But um, I just wanted to start off with this one today. So for the folks at home who can't quite see it, I'll just read through it as we go through each panel. So as you can, as, well, some of you can see, uh, we start off with, with two men walking along a path in the countryside under a banner that says America for the last few hundred years. It could just be as easily as um, saying Australia, not, not for a few hundred years, but anyway, you get the point. So the first man says, I feel like we're at the end of an era in our country. Doesn't it seem like that? Um, for so long, Christianity was considered a good thing for our society. Thanks, Dave. Christians were generally liked. The Bible was considered a good book. Christian morals were considered standard. Christianity was kind of the norm. That's all changing now, and it's happening so quickly. It's not considered a positive thing to be a Christian anymore. From our culture's point of view, it's so different. It's so weird. And the second man answers him, different, yes, weird, no. We're leaving weird behind. We're headed back towards normal. And as I say this, they're walking under a banner that says, most of the world since the early church, welcome, we don't like you. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is, a, it is a fearsome and awesome thing to preach the words of the living God. And so, Lord, I do pray that um, uh, these words that I do say, that they are helpful, that they are instructive, and that they are most importantly faithful and true to, to your word. And um, I just pray that uh, uh, anything I say that is not true or helpful will be like chaff in the wind, Lord. Amen. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I tend to assume people have an open Bible in front of them when I'm doing this. Um, so it'd be really handy if, if you had one. Um, and if you're like me, you sort of get to church and realise you've forgotten your glasses as well, so you can't read along. But um, anyway, so into Acts. So verses 12 to 16, these set up the scene, uh, these verses set up the scene for what's going to follow. In verse 12, we, we learn that by the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders are being done regularly. And uh, if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, Steve reminded us that, that, that what the signs do is that they're pointing to something. And here they're all gathered in uh, Solomon's uh, portico. So back in chapter 3, they were preaching here as well. Portico simply means covering, and, and Solomon's portico is, is an area along the eastern wall of the temple, so they're right in the heart of the temple precinct here. And remember also, back in chapter 2, uh, you, at that stage they had 3,000 people added to them in one day, and we keep reading how more and more people are being added, and so how many thousands of people are with them now? Um, there was one suggestion I read that said there could have been as many as 15,000 people gathered here at this time. If you have a look at verses in 13 and 14, uh, that's interesting because verse 13 says that none, none of the rest dared join them. 
But then verse 14 goes on to say that more believers were being added to the Lord. Um, Seems like a bit of a contradiction. But what's likely going on here is that after seeing the death of Ananias and Sapphira, as we heard about last week, is that people saw the high standards of God's holiness. F.F. Bruce says that they scared off all but the totally committed. So those of, of superficial faith or a cursory interest have, have steered clear. But despite that, in verse 14, people could see what was going on and the Lord kept adding to their number. These are the people who are committed and see the holiness of God and are still drawn in. And in verses 15 and 16, people are being healed and cleansed of unclean spirits. Um, just something, this is a bit of a side note that I found interesting. Um, it says that it talks about Peter's shadow falling on them. The, the consensus seemed to be that even Peter's shadow falling on them calls healing. But the sentence doesn't actually say that. It says that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came, came as people as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall and fall on some of them. It doesn't actually say that his shadow healed them. This 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 might be akin to uh, going out that I might just but see the Queen, for example. Um, anyway, it's not a big deal, just a bit of a minor observation. Um, but what is clear in verse sixteen is that people are coming from all around the district and that those who are sick and afflicted with unclean spirits were all being healed. Now, verse 17, the high priests, they see the popularity of the apostles uh, and they rose up and all that, sorry, they rose up and all those who were with them arrested them and threw them into prison. There are some who argue that Chapter 5 is simply a rehash of Chapter 4, which Jason preached about a couple of weeks ago. But while these events do have similarities, they are quite different. And they... Sorry. They are quite different and they reinforce the ongoing opposition that the the apostles face in the preaching of the word. Uh, Last week, in relation to Ananias and Sapphira, Steve mentioned that this is the second time Um, in the Bible, that we hear of someone being filled with Satan. In Acts so far, this is the third time we read of people being filled with something. Um, The apostles with the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira with Satan, but here they are filled with jealousy. This is just one of those fascinating things about what's going on at this stage. Um, These people, they see the same signs as everyone else, but instead of being amazed, that they're filled with jealousy. Now, jealousy can be a good thing. We can have a godly jealousy. A man can be jealous for his wife. But the jealousy here is, as in Galatians 5, it's as works of the flesh as opposed to uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, back in Chapter 4, if you remember, there um, from a couple of weeks ago, we read about, we heard about from Jason how um, Peter and John are put into custody. This would have been um, in the temple precinct. And in chapter 4, the priests are greatly annoyed. But here in chapter 5, they're in a jealous rage. And the high priest and the Sanhedrin this time, they not only arrest Peter and John, but all the apostles, and they throw them in the prison for what was going to be an overnight stay at that stage. And the prison here is not in the temple precinct, but it's the public prison, it's the Roman prison. So the stakes here have been well and truly ramped up from from chapter 4. 
And also, just to go back a step, given they've already been arrested and threatened, why are they still here preaching? Acts 4.29 and following. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word, your word in all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So these men are filled with a holy boldness. They just cannot shut up. They are compelled to go out and preach. They just can't help themselves. But back to our text. So they're in prison, and in verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, if we skip ahead a little bit, in in, in verse 23, when the officers go to the prison to collect them and bring them to the council, they find all the doors are locked and the guards are still there. So this, this is very much a miraculous rescue. We're not given many details, just as the angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and let them out, and all this is in spite of the guards. And then apparently the doors were locked again behind them. So they're freed by an angel of the Lord and told in verse 20, go and stand in the temple, prince. go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now Brian Borgman made the, made the observation that these men were not delivered for their own safety. They weren't delivered for their own safety. They were given a commission to go and stand, not to run away, but to stand in the temple precinct and preach. They are to return where they were arrested and where they met their opposition in defiance of the high priest and to speak all the words of this life, the words of salvation and eternal life, this life that is in Jesus Christ. So doing as they're told, they enter the temple at daybreak and begin to teach. Now, now going at that time of day was not a cop-out. I mean, who's going to be at the temple at dawn, at daybreak? But dawn in the temple is a time of morning sacrifices and prayers. It's a very busy time. There would have been a lot of people around. Now, in verse 21, the high priest and the council send to the prison to have the apostles brought out to find they're gone. And again, verse 23, it stresses that the doors were locked and the guards were still at their post. And this has left the, great, the chief priests greatly perplexed. What has happened to them? And then the report comes. We found them. They're where they were yesterday and still teaching. The captain and his officers go and collect them, but notice the passage stresses, the passage stresses that this was not by force um, because they were afraid. Fear gripped them, fear of the people and the people stoning them. The, the, the apostles here are the favour of the crowds and the, camp, the captain is not wanting to risk a scene. He says, you know, please come with me. And then in verse 27, the apostles are brought before the council, which is in all likelihood the Sanhedrin. And as so often happens when something miraculous occurs, the religious leaders seem blinded by the miraculous and are consumed by their own positions of power. They don't ask, how did you escape? But we ordered you to stop preaching and then accuse them of filling Jerusalem with this, with this teaching. And then Peter and the apostles answer in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. In the Greek, this can also be rendered as necessary to obey God rather than men. This is the principle of civil disobedience. Now in Romans 13, that Dave read out, um, yeah, Dave read out was earlier, getting mixed up here. Um, 
that states that all authorities are instituted by God and that to disobey a God-appointed governing authority is to incur judgment. So it's right to obey our government and our authorities, but not always. What happens when the civil authorities ask us to do things that either break God's law or go against our conscience? We started off reading Daniel 6. Um, I'm not going to finish it. Um, I think most of you know how it ends, and if you don't, well, there's some good homework for you. But um, at this stage of the story, Daniel's held in high honour, and a group of the other officials are seeking grounds to accuse him. But because of Daniel's conduct, they can't find any reason to accuse him of anything. So they use his faith against him, and they get the king to put in place a law that stops anyone praying to any other god than the king. Daniel's response is to do as he's always done. Three times a day, he goes upstairs, opens his windows and prays to God. And as we know, he's seen and then thrown into the lion's den. Now, we know that at the end of the story, he is rescued from these lions, but Daniel doesn't know that. He refuses to bow down to the king and risks a terrible death. Despite the cost, despite the potential cost, he obeys God rather than men. In 1662 the English Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity. As of the 21st of August in that year, all non-conformist ministers were to be kicked out of all the churches in England in an event that became known as the Great Ejection. In essence, these non-conformist ministers took their authority not from the Book of Common Prayer as they'd been ordered, but from the Bible. 2,000 ministers were ejected from their churches. But instead of being silenced, they continued to preach and they kept bringing in new laws to try and stop them preaching, like um, uh, the Five Mile Act. They weren't allowed within five miles of of, of a church, for example. Um, So they continued to preach. And and as a result, some were killed, some were imprisoned, even with their whole families, with their wives and children. And for the next quarter of a century, these men were mocked and maligned and ridiculed to the point where even today the word um, Puritan is seen as derisive. The point is that they, like many of God's people throughout history and even into the modern day, chose and continue to choose to obey God rather than men. And this is despite the consequences. So the apostles here tell the Sanhedrin, that they will obey God and not men, despite the costs, as, as, as we'll see. We'll get back to that. Okay, so back to verse 30. In making his point, people... Sorry, in making his point, Peter points to the God of our fathers. This is the covenant of the God of Israel. This is the hope of Israel. This is not something new or novel that they're talking about. This God raised Jesus who you killed. He's pointing the finger squarely at them, who you killed by hanging on a tree. If you remember, Deuteronomy 21 tells us that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So these men, they killed him and they cursed him. But but look at the text. God raised him up and God exalts him. So they killed him and cursed him, but God raised him and exalts him. He is exalted as a leader and a saviour. To do what? To give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Um, I must admit, I've never noticed that phrasing before. Um, God exalts Jesus to his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel 
and the forgiveness of sins. Now I know Jesus gives me for the gift. I know Jesus gives me forgiveness, but I'd never thought before that He actually gives me repentance as well. Isn't that something I do? Um, Ephesians two eight and nine says that uh, for grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing; it's a gift of God. So faith itself is a gift from God, and so according to this verse is repentance. Just an interesting point. Um, just a discussion for another day. Um, but the point here, though, is that the apostles won't be silenced. They are moved by a holy boldness to keep preaching Christ and to keep teaching the truth. The response of the Pharisees is that they are now enraged and want to kill them. But Gamaliel stands up. Gamaliel is a, is a familiar name to most of us. In Acts 22, this is the man who, who Saul later Paul studied under. Here we are told he's a teacher of the law and he's held in high honour by all the people. He seeks to speak reason to these to this group, reminding them of, of Thutis, Thetis, Thetis, and then Judas the Galilean, and how they both gathered a following, but after they were killed, the followers dispersed. He tells them to keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, before we move on, we just want to touch on something. Is this good advice? On one level, yes, he's right. Um, Only something ordained by God will ultimately survive. But let's just think about that for a minute. There are plenty of religions and cults and ideologies that have endured for many years and some for centuries. Um, Let's just look at the attempts to overthrow Islam over the centuries, but Islam endures and grows. The prosperity gospel, which is a blatantly false gospel, is growing at a great rate. And yet at the same time, there are good, faithful churches that struggle to survive. Now, in an ultimate sense, if you look at the big picture, anything or anyone not of Christ will ultimately be destroyed when he returns. But from our very finite perspective, we still need to exercise discernment and good judgment. As John Stott says, the Gamaliel principle is not a reliable index. But here, they take Gamaliel's advice, calling in the apostles, they beat them, tell them to to desist, speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Now, in typical biblical style, what these men endure is rather understated. Where the text simply says that they beat them, in all likelihood, these men would have received the 40 lashes minus one. So these 39 lashes, two-thirds were applied to the bare back, and the other 13 to the bare chest. If you're in poor health, uh, this lashing could prove fatal. And it also would have left permanent scars. Uh, And when men who received this punishment were out in the fields working and stripped down to the waist, these scars would be a visible sign to everyone that that there's a lawbreaker. They were bared, so, yeah, these men, the, the apostles, they would bear them. Sorry. Anyone who bore these scars would bear the marks of shame and dishonour for the rest of their lives. But what is the apostles' response here? They rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name, and then they continue every day in the temple and house to house, preaching that Christ is Jesus. Worthy to suffer dishonour. As one commentator puts it, this is a grammatical oxymoron. 
They are worthy to suffer shame. Nick Ripkin, odd name, but Nick Ripkin, in his book, The Insanity of God, um, he talks about persecutions of, of, of Christians all over the world in modern times. In one chapter, he talks of uh, visiting China. Um, there he gets into a van with some local Christians and they spend hours just driving up and down streets and all over the countryside, making sure they're not being followed, making sure that um, uh, yeah, they're going to, when, when they turn up at the church, they're going to be safe and not, not caught by the authorities. Because the, the, the gathering of the underground church is at a secret location. But what was interesting in that community, you're not considered a true Christian and brought, and brought fully into that Christian community until you spent time in prison for your faith. To be a Christian in China means that inevitably you will face jail time. And if your faith can survive the harsh conditions and treatment of a Chinese prison, it's only then that your faith is proved genuine. It's only then that you've shown you're a true follower of Christ. If you haven't been to prison, you haven't been tested yet, and who knows where your allegiances lie. But being imprisoned, they were worthy to suffer shame and to bear the name of Christ. In our society, um, possibly for far too long, we've had a domesticated and enculturated Christianity. Too many of our churches just simply bow to the current ideology without question. So what are we willing to risk for our faith? What are we willing to risk to serve the Lord? What are we willing to risk to love our neighbour as ourselves? Historically and in many parts of the world, to live, a, to live as a Christian is radical, revolutionary and dangerous. It doesn't take much to see our government and our society turn completely against us. Um, I know, I don't know anyone else who what they've had to face, but I know in my workplace I've... Um, had to go to my manager a few times and explain why I haven't wanted to bow down to the, um, the current sexual zeitgeist. But um, And I'm under no illusion that in some stage, at some stage, I'll be asked to do something at work to participate in something that will mean I'll lose my job because I'm just not going to do it. And our state is passing laws that are effectively, our state of Victoria is passing laws that are effectively making some aspects of Christianity illegal. We are moved, being moved further and further to the fringes. Um, under the guise of, of, of the pandemic, um, I'm not saying right or rightly or wrongly here, but uh, we've been prevented from meeting together or visiting other people. Um, again, this is I'm not saying this is um, with or without cause, but having done it once, what's to stop our governments doing it for other reasons? Um, we use Many of us are just simply used to using the QR codes uh, to track and trace everybody now. Again, good reason for that, but um, uh, we've seen how easy it is to, to get people to do that and to place whole communities and even the whole state effectively under house arrest. Um, and they're about to introduce, it's already in South Australia, I believe, but it's coming into, into Victoria, where um, if, if you, instead of going into formal quarantine, you'll be quarantined at home. You need to download an app onto your phone. At any time of the day or night, they can send a ping to your phone and you have a certain amount of minutes to, to um, I think you take a, 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 a selfie and then that also shows where you are. So the government can know at any, any stage exactly where you are and what you're doing. So point is, under, under home quarantine, it's meant to prove you're at home and not out down the shops. 
Um, so, yes, that's being done for our own safety. But it's not hard to see how a country or a state wanting to control these control citizens um, could use these measures um, against us. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen here, um, but you can see how easily it can be done. Um, so going back to Daniel 6, what's interesting is that there's no actual commandment that I'm aware of for anyone to openly pray three times a day to God. But in the face of the king's decree, Daniel keeps on doing just that regardless of the consequences. He could have closed his windows and prayed in secret, for example. But that went against his conscience and his faith. So he risked, he would rather risk death than go against his own conscience, go against his own Christian conscience. So, But we need to be wise as servants and innocent as doves. We need to be mindful of which hill or hills we're going to die on. Some are clear gospel issues, but some are more vague and, and issues of more individual Christian conscience. Um, so as, as, a, as a famous example from a few years ago, would you bake a cake for a gay wedding? Um, as, as most of you will know, a Christian baker in the US refused to do so because it went against his Christian conscience and he was taken to task and still, to the best of my knowledge, is still after him. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say anywhere, you know, thou shalt not bake a cake for a gay wedding. And some Christians even argue that very point, that it's more loving to bake the, to bake the cake. But this man drew a line in the sand and said, no, this goes against my Christian conscience. And, and for that reason, I will obey God rather than men. And they came after him. But what about us? What about you? So where's your line in the sand? Um... Where are the things that you simply cannot or will not do or or partake in because it will either violate God's direct commands or your conscience as a Christian? So the point is here, there will be times we need to choose to be faithful or to be safe. A couple of quotes. Brian Borgman. Acts is meant to prepare us. It's designed to loose us from our comfort zone. In Acts, people gladly suffer for the sake of the name. The true church will always be a suffering church. This is what we have been appointed to. And John Piper on why we can rejoice when suffering. With the help of Christ, you are proven in the fire and have come through a genuine. You did not recant. Christ is real in your life. He is for you the all-satisfying God he claims to be. Uh, this might seem like a strange place to end. It's not as uplifting as it was going to be when I started out. A bit of a downer, really. But I'm convinced that these are things we need to think deeply about. Um, we need to be prepared so we're not taken by surprise when suffering and persecution comes. Um, Christians around the world today live lives that are unimaginable to us in our country. And we need to think about those things. Now, it's good and right to hope and pray that we can live and worship in peace. And we must never forget that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. Christ's victory is assured and we are on the winning team. But remember that cartoon at the start? As we return to normal and our society turns against us, where will we... No, sorry, 
and our society turns against us and where we will suffer for our faith. Two questions. Are you prepared to obey God rather than men? And when and if you do, will you rejoice, knowing that you are counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name and then continue every day in the temple or the church and house to house preaching that Christ is Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed sovereign, that you are in control. And we thank you that, that Christ was victorious over sin and death and the evil one and that uh, although he was killed by evil men, that you raised him up and exalted him at your right hand, making him leader and saviour to give us repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, as we deal with the changing times around us, uh, we do indeed pray for peace and we pray that we may be able to continue to meet and to live our lives without fear or censure of the state or even our neighbours. But we do pray for courage and wisdom, Lord. The courage to first and foremost to obey you and let us do that in spite of whatever the consequences may be. And when we do suffer for your name's sake, Lord, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that we've been considered worthy of your name and let us hold fast to your promises.